Well, guys, evidence is a great topic, and we're talking about evidence a lot at the moment, aren't we? So when it comes to thinking about COVID, will there be a second wave? What's the evidence that there may or may not be a second wave? What's the evidence that keeping two meters apart is significantly better than keeping one meters apart, one meter apart? What's the evidence that returning to school or returning to work will be safe? Evidence is a big topic at the moment. Madeleine McCann, what's the evidence? We're all potentially trying to weigh it up. Who, what happened to her, dead or alive? Who took her tragically? What's the evidence? Big topic at the moment. And I think it's no different to when we turn to the topic of Jesus Christ. You see, the more I've studied the man Jesus Christ, and I know I speak for so many others when I say this, the more I've realized that the evidence that he is who he says he is, is so compelling that it begins to get to the point where it takes a larger leap of faith to dismiss him than to follow him. And the key thing I want to get across today is that when we look at Jesus Christ, it's the buildup of evidence that is so compelling. So, for example, let's take a mundane example. If, if Lena heard that a man was rescued from the Wicklow estuary because he got caught out by the tide by a coast guard, she would think this morning, she would think that could be Patrick but maybe not enough evidence. That's just one point. If she, were, if she heard a man was rescued by the Coast Guard, he got stuck in the estuary and he was fly fishing, she would say, okay, that's two bits of evidence. It's beginning to build up, but maybe still not enough. If she heard man rescued by Coast Guard, fly fishing, he was a 25-year-old man who had the body of a 14-year-old boy, she would say, okay, now the evidence really is beginning to be compelling. Man rescued by Coast Guard, fly fishing, body of a 14-year-old boy, and he drove there in a red boat. Volkswagen, she would say, okay, perhaps now the evidence is too big. It must have been Patrick. We can confirm with confidence. So it's the buildup of evidence that is so compelling around Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to get to today. What I want to talk about today is I think there are five large key pieces of evidence when it comes to Jesus Christ that made me, as I got into my later teenage years, stop my tracks and think, I have to take this man seriously. First of all, his miracles. Now, there is no other character in the whole of human history who was so widely attested to have performed miracles than this man, Jesus Christ. Absolutely, there are other characters who have claimed to have, who, whose followers have claimed they have performed miracles, but no one as widely as this man, Jesus Christ. And the amazing thing is, it's not just his followers, it's not just the authors of the Bible, and indeed other Jewish and a Roman historian who talk about his miracles, even Jesus Christ's enemies talk about his miracles. So as I studied theology, I came across a very interesting document called the Babylonian Talmud. Now the Babylonian Talmud was written by Orthodox Jews in the first century. And the main aim of, or one of the key aims of the document was to discredit this man, Jesus Christ. And so they come up with all these, a number of spurious claims about why he should not be taken seriously. And they have a section on his miracles. And what do they say about his miracles? They say, yes, this man, Jesus Christ, performed miracles, but it was by the power of Beelzebub. It was by the power of the evil one. Do you see what they've done there? Haven't they slightly snookered themselves? You see, if Jesus Christ didn't perform miracles, surely the easiest thing for his enemies to say who were there, who were eyewitnesses at the time, would be to say, we never saw any, any miracles. We never saw them. But instead, even they concede, yes, okay, he did some remarkable miracles, but it was by the power of the evil one, so don't follow him. So this man, Jesus Christ, so widely attested to have performed miracles by his followers, and crucially, I think, 
by his enemies as well. But that's just a start, just one piece of evidence. Well, what about his teaching? Now, there have been many great moral teachers throughout the course of history. I think some would say, particularly in the ancient world, this man, Jesus Christ, was the finest moral teacher of all time. Vanessa, can we flick on to the next slide, please? Now, I wonder if you've come across his teaching. I wonder if you would agree that perhaps it's superior to Plato, to Socrates, to Confucius, to other great teachers of the ancient world. Only the difference with this man, Jesus Christ, is he came from a poverty-stricken backwater of the Roman Empire. Where he grew up, it's unlikely that he was even ever formally taught to read. So where did he get this teaching from, this ability to teach 2,000 years later, translated into a very different language called English, and yet it still makes such pertinent sense? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothes? But it goes on and on. I mean, there's an endless list. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn them, turn to the other cheek, turn the other cheek to them as well. What about the story of the prodigal son, the, the sower of the seed, the man who built his life upon the rock? There's endless body of remarkable moral teaching. Where did he get that from? Where did he get the power to teach from? Probably never formally educated. So do you see the evidence begins to build up? Miracles, this teaching. Ah, there's so much more. What about prophecy? Now, I think prophecy alone is perhaps the most compelling of all these points. You see, if God was going to come himself down into his creation, what would be a great way of him signaling it? Well, perhaps many hundreds of years before he came, he could say, this is what I'm going to do. This is what's going to happen. And then he could come and he could fulfill it. And when we look at the Old Testament feeding into the New Testament, it is remarkable how accurately that appears to happen. Again, we could unpack the topic of prophecy for hours on end. Let me try and do it in three minutes. Let me just pick out a few highlights. So here's a, um, here's a quote from Joel, Joel chapter two, verse 28 to 32. Now, Joel was a prophet who believed he was speaking for God. And in Joel chapter two, he begins to talk about the great and glorious day when God himself is going to come and he's going to save his people. Now we know absolutely for a fact that Joel is written many hundreds of years before Jesus Christ came. And we know this from carbon dating. We know this from other manuscript evidence, etc. Anyway, let's read what Joel chapter 2 verse 28 to 32 says. It says, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyway, Joel 2 goes on and on and on. And it says that there's this great day that's going to come. The Lord himself is going to come. He's going to save his people. And how will we know that he's saving his people on that day? Well, there will be a lunar eclipse. The, moon, the sun turned to darkness, the moon to blood. That's a common way in ancient literature to talk about a lunar eclipse. Well, fast forward hundreds of years and Jesus Christ dies on the cross. And the great claim of Christianity is in that moment, God himself has come to earth and is saving his people. And all four gospels, which are the eyewitness accounts included in the New Testament about Jesus' life and crucially death. All four gospels talk about how as Jesus Christ died on that cross, there was a lunar eclipse. The sun turned to darkness. Remarkable. So Joel says, hundreds of years from now, God's going to come. He's going to save his people. How will you know the great glorious day has come? Well, there'll be a lunar eclipse. Very, very rare lunar eclipses. Then the four gospel writers say it was remarkable. As Christ died on that cross, the moon was turned to darkness. 
or the sun turned to darkness, sorry, the moon to blood, the moon goes red in a lunar eclipse. Well, you might say, sure, the gospel writers are just trying to latterly fulfill something that they saw, and we have no idea whether there was actually a lunar eclipse or anything of the sort on that day. Well, okay. Fast forward 2,000 years later to Sir Colin Humphreys. He was a professor of physics at Cambridge University, and he was also an astronomer. Now, Sir Colin Humphreys got a doctorate for this work, and or a Nobel Prize even for this work. He worked out a, a way to track all the lunar eclipses that had ever happened throughout the course of history in the Middle East. And, and he found two things. Firstly, he found lunar eclipses were very, very rare in the area around the Middle East. Secondly, he found rare though they were, there were a few. And indeed, there was one on Friday, the 3rd of April, that's the weekend of the Passover festival, exactly when we believe Jesus would have been crucified in 33 AD, roughly from the hours of six, so do you see the picture begins to build up when Joel says hundreds of years before Jesus comes, the Lord himself is going to come, the moon, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. When all four gospel writers say it was remarkable as this great miracle worker teacher died on the cross, the whole sky went black. And then when 2000 years later, Sir Colin Humphreys works out that there was indeed a lunar eclipse on the very date that the gospel writers say that Jesus Christ dies. Maybe we start to see something remarkable. That this man, Jesus Christ, fulfilled prophecy in a way that no other historical figure ever has before. And we could go on and on. I mean, I would invite you to open up Isaiah 53. Remarkable accuracy about how the, sa the saviour is going to have to die before he saves his people. About how he will be died and about the purpose of his death. Isaiah 53 says he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him by his wounds. We are healed. There's Psalm 22, a pack of dogs, a pack of evil men, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare. It goes on and on. Pick out Psalm 22, read it and see how accurately it talks about the death of God's chosen one and what it's going to look like. And there are many, many more. Jesus Christ fulfilled prophecy in a way that no other historical figure ever has before. Do you see the evidence is beginning to build up? What do you make of this miracle claim of the fact that his followers and even his enemies talk about his miracles? What do you make of his teaching? Where did he get this teaching from? Have you come across a better moral teacher? Have you come across a better moral teacher who also performed miracles and who also fulfilled prophecy with remarkable accuracy? I wonder, do you see the evidence begins to build up? And we haven't even got on to perhaps the most compelling piece at all, is resurrection. The resurrection is a fascinating historical conundrum for those who do not believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. And there are so many places we could go to discuss the credibility of the resurrection. Well, the resurrection, sorry, the claim that after Jesus died, three days later, that he rose again, that he came back to life to show once and for all, I am who I said I was. To show once and for all. That's the great claim. Well, there's many, way, many angles to take on the resurrection. The famous argument, who took the body? If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, where did the body go? Well, you might say, aha, well, surely the Romans, the political establishment, they confiscated it. Well, the trouble is, Christianity then becomes a detestable spreading religion, which they do everything to try and stamp out. And the key claim of the early Christians was that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. 
So surely if the Romans took the body, they would have just reproduced it, said, aha, you can stop your spurious claims, here's the body. But they could never do it. Search though they might, they could never produce the body. So the Romans, well, maybe they didn't take it. Similarly, the Jewish rulers, you might say, well, the Jews, the Jewish establishment went in and took it. But again, they also hate the new movement that springs in the wake of the life and death of Jesus Christ. As we saw, they produced the Babylonian Talmud, an extensive document to discredit him. If they had taken the body, would they not have simply reproduced it? Aha, here it is. You don't have to believe anymore. That's it. That would have killed what they call this, this superstition. Be good. Well, you might say, no, no, his followers took the body. And yet en masse, Jesus' followers go and die for what they saw. If they knew the body had been confiscated, why would they do that? Again, it's good to be clear, isn't it, that many, many people die for things throughout the course of human history. And just because someone die, is willing to die for something doesn't necessarily make it true, whatever in, in some cases true means. But the trouble is most people die for ideas. Here in Ireland, many people have died for the idea of Irish republicanism. Podrick Pierce, he talked about laying his blood down as a sacrifice to die for the idea. Many people die today for radical Islam or radical Islamist views, etc. Many people die for many, many causes. But what is unique about the early followers of Jesus Christ is they don't die for an idea, they die for a fact. They die saying we saw it with our own eyes and we can't get away from it. They die for something that's black and white, that can be proved or not proved. Either he did rise and dead or he didn't. It's very different to dying for an idea. So if they took the body, why would they have died for it? So where did the body go? Well, I ask you. Uh, how about this? Here's another one. We'll leg it through this one quickly. In all the gospel accounts, it's really interesting that women are the first people to find Jesus risen from the dead. Now, scandalously, ancient Rome and the Roman Empire was a, was, a, was a scandalously misogynistic place. Dreadfully so. And one of the horrible consequences of the misogynistic culture of the empire was that a woman couldn't give a testimony in a court of law. It was believed a woman's word couldn't be trusted. They, they couldn't stand up and give a testimony in a court of law. Because if a woman saw me be robbed, well, how can we trust her? That's what they believed scandalously at the time. So you would think if you were coming up with a myth, coming up with a hoax, if you were trying to convince someone that someone rose from the dead and yet they didn't, why would you have it that women are the first people to see Jesus rise from the dead? That is not a good way to start a myth in the Roman Empire. That is easily dismissible by the enemies. And yet, in all four gospel accounts, women find us first. And again, it gives the impression that these men who were writing these historical documents thought that they were recording just that, history. They weren't trying to create a hoax. If they would, if they were, they surely would have began with men seeing him first. So anyway, there's, there's an abundance of ins and outs of the resurrection story that make it so compelling. And um, Vanessa, if you click over to the next slide, I won't go into it in detail, but you have to, you have to look. You, you, I also would invite you to look in the New Testament at the certainty with which authors talk about his resurrection. At the, so St. Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about how he and 500 others and all of the early church saw him rise from the dead. And if you can prove that he didn't rise from the dead, then his whole faith is in vain and you should throw it out and not listen to it. Anyway, it's a remarkable certainty with which he talks about the resurrection. So do you see the evidence begins to build up? Here comes this figure into history. He performs miracles. He's so widely attested to perform miracles to, to a far greater extent than any other historical figure that's ever lived on this earth. 
Secondly, he gives us remarkable moral teaching. Where does he get this teaching from? Amazing teaching. Thirdly, he fulfills prophecy in a way that no figure ever has before. Fourthly, he dies, and then there's all this body of evidence around his resurrection. And lastly, how about the growth of the early church? The early church was the fastest growing religious movement of all time. And yet it had no economic, no military, no political power. And yet it spread like wildfire through the empire. It spread so fast that by 64 AD, Christianity had such a presence in the capital of the empire, Rome, which was many miles from Judea where the whole thing began, that the emperor Nero blames the fire of Rome on the, first, on the early Christians as an excuse to get rid of them. So this is what Tacitus says about the early Christians and about Nero trying to put the blame on them. I'll, I'll read it as quick as I can for the sake of time. Consequently, to get rid of the rapport, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty, that's, that's a word for crucifixion, during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our pure procurators Pontius Pilate and a most mischievous superstition thus checked for the moment again broke out not only in Judea the first source of the evil see how they hate this early Christian movement see how much they would have loved to discredit it if they could the evil but even in Rome where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city as of hatred against mankind. Do you see how fast the early Christian movement spread? Within 30 years of Christ's death, it's taken the empire by storm. How? Why? No military, no economic, no political power. How did this happen? if built all on a hoax. And the last thing I'd say is, do you see, this is very, very different to how myths develop. I remember I, I did a paper on the development of myths at university. And it's quite clear that myths begin to develop and really take strength in a population hundreds of years after the alleged event has happened. So for example, if we take the uh, myth of St. Patrick in Ireland. St. Patrick is in Ireland, I think around the 400s, perhaps 500s. And for about four or five hundred years, no one in literature talks about the fact that he drove out snakes from Ireland. This is this legend that Irish people know when it comes to St. Patrick. For about 400, 500 years, no one talks about it. Then after 500 years, it begins to begin popular. And finally, a thousand years afterwards, by the Middle Ages, it's received as some sort of fact that St. Patrick, in some sort of miraculous way, banished all the snakes from Ireland. That's why we no longer have snakes. But it takes a long time to grow, very, very slowly. And only after eyewitnesses are long since dead does the myth really take hold. Not so with early Christianity. It spreads, boom, like wildfire while the eyewitnesses who could discredit it for or against are still very much alive. Anyway, guys, I'm going to try and draw stumps there. But I hope you can see that it is this buildup of evidence that compels me to say, I think it's harder to deny this man Jesus than it is to follow him. His miracles, his teaching, his prophecy, his resurrection, the growth of the early church. And then there's so much more. I mean, I haven't even touched upon how Jesus Christ still today, 2000 years later, is impacting or people believe he's impacting their lives thousands of years later in all sorts of different cultures and climates today. How Christianity remains the fastest growing religious movement. Pentecostal Christianity is growing like wildfire 
as it was 2000 years ago. In I know that's not our experience in this little pocket of the world called Western Europe, but in, sub, in uh, South America, in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, in China indeed, in much of Southeast Asia, it's still today. This man, Jesus Christ, people still today talk about having personal religious experiences of him. Miracles, teaching, prophecy, resurrection, growth of the early church, and many, many more still today. It's a list, I think, that's too long to ignore.